Hey guys, Darren Bentley here. And before we get started, I wanted to make a special announcement. We have officially opened registration for the Private Money Conference, which is a three-day live event where you will learn directly from Jay and his team how to raise thousands of dollars in private money to fund all of your real estate deals. Now, in today's changing market, more and more people are losing out to other investors because most of those investors have the cash to fund these deals. Did you know that you are missing out on 87% of the real estate deals out there because you don't have access to private money? Sadly, most real estate investors don't even know this is the reason why they continue to lose deal after deal. And with everything that's happening in the market today, you absolutely need every advantage available to you. And having access to unlimited amounts of private money is your big advantage. So to register for this live event, head over to jconnor.com forward slash event. Again, that is jconnor.com, J-A-Y-C-O-N-N-E-R.com forward slash event, where you will be able to lock in your seat for this live in-person three-day event, which takes place June 12th, 13th, and the 14th in beautiful North Carolina. But you got to be fast because there are a limited number of seats, and when they are gone, they're gone. So again, to take advantage of this incredible event and to learn how to raise all the private money you'll ever need directly from Jay Connor and his team, head over to jayconnor.com forward slash event. Again, that is jayconnor.com, J-A-Y-C-O-N-N-E-R.com forward slash event. Now let's get into today's episode. So how can people register and what's the website and, and sure. to get all, get all the details? It is AAPL online.com. So the American Association of Private Lenders, aaplonline.com. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Sounds like a phenomenal event. Now you were just talking about Dodd-Frank, which leads me into one question I wanted to ask you and get your detailed answer. So real estate investors, if they've been around the block any length of time, they've heard the woes of Dodd-Frank. Mm -hmm. But very few people, even the quote unquote gurus, very few people have I heard actually speak definitively and really know what they're talking about to this question. And that is today, really, to what degree specifically does Dodd-Frank affect what real estate investors do, what they can do, what they can't do? what they need to be concerned about, what they need to be aware of as relates to Dodd-Frank. I know that's a wide open question, but it's a really, really important question because in my opinion, Eddie, there's a lot of information floating around out there in the education space for real estate investors that people just don't know what they're talking about. So let me turn the mic back over to you and free will on that. Okay. So Dodd-Frank, I think you're absolutely correct, kind of gets this bucket that everybody dumps all their problems in. It's like, oh, the Dodd-Frank legislation caused all these problems. You know, interesting enough, Dodd-Frank was a knee-jerk reaction to the the crash in 2007, 2008. They 
wrote legislation that then mandated how much, you know, number one, how much banks could lend and what liability they could take on. And then the parameters by which data and information they would select and qualify. That's basically it, right? I mean, it has seven points to the Dodd. I mean, there's seven major points in the Dodd-Frank bill. And what it did was it made it a little bit difficult, a little bit more difficult to get conventional money. What it did, though, was provide one of the greatest waves of private capital coming into the marketplace than we've ever seen in America. I mean, like the, the, the massive amount of, you know, 13 to 17 billion dollars then coming in from private means, sources of capital coming out of China. I mean, it was amazing the, the vacuum it created. But quickly, by 2009, 2010, that vacuum had already been plugged by private capital that was trying to find a way to find greater returns. So, you know, I think oftentimes the SAFE Act, which was the act that was then, you know, enacted, you know, past that, gets overlooked and Dodd-Frank kind of gets blamed for everything. The SAFE Act probably has more influence on real estate investors based on the regulation that came out of that and all the things that they could or could not do. So what happened this past year? So we went in and and there was a modification. President Trump uh, did not want to do away with the bill. What he did was cause a modification. So the modification came last May. It was voted on and accepted. And what it did was it allowed small private banks and credit unions the ability to get back into the small business lending game. I would say that investors actually weren't harmed for a long period of time because of Dodd-Frank. That might be a very unpopular opinion, but it's a qualified opinion. What happened was the small business community took the greatest brunt of the Dodd-Frank reform because credit unions and small banks were no longer allowed to lend based on the criteria that Dodd-Frank set up. So in that modification, we voted and put in, so like point number three in Dodd-Frank talked about what liability can a small bank take on? Well, that was radically changed. And you're starting to see now small banks, small funds, and credit unions get back into real estate investing. They first jumped into small business uh, lending last June through, through the summer. And now this year, you're seeing a lot more uh, conventional capital coming from private banks in the real estate investing space. So, you know, to to say that Dodd-Frank had this massive catastrophic, you know, effect on the the real estate investing space, I think is a little bit of a farce. What it did was it changed the mechanism by which the more sophisticated investor made money. For instance... I was building a lot of new construction back in those days and did fine through the through the, the recession and the downturn. I had capital to work with. I'd sold a business. I was buying things cheap. I was developing in areas that communities were struggling. But then once the banks started taking away the ability for a lot of the investors to borrow, primarily through home equity lines of credit and all the things that we used to do, now limited, they needed private capital. And I found myself sitting at the lending table versus sitting at the buying table oftentimes. And where I was struggling to make 10, 12, 15% return on my real estate investment, I could begin to partner with somebody in the real estate investment space, make 10, 12, 15% in an area that they could then turn around and make 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, 50% because they were finding opportunities. And it created this vacuum where private lenders just rushed into there's more 
capital and market today than we've ever seen in our history. And I think Dodd-Frank is the, is the responsible party. And so to me, I know that everybody looks at it as like, that was the devil. That was the bad thing that happened out of the recession. I think what it did was it actually allowed our economy to shift, private capital to find a way in, and then we sustained ourselves. And then everybody found an opportunity as the, as the market rose. So, you know, I don't know that I answered the really specific question you asked me, but more in broad stroke, I believe that is what happened. And then that was, is what the outcome of what the Dodd-Frank bill uh, created and the reform that happened last year. You're the first person that has agreed with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, well, that's good. <laughs> I didn't know what your answer was going to be, but I knew it was going to be spot on. That's for sure. So, so more specifically now, Eddie, what would you say are two or three things that, that are still currently in place by law that a real estate investor should be aware of or, or not yeah. to do? I mean, like, for example, you know, anybody that's out there that's doing, you know, seller financing, you know, right. That, that may be a specific point, you know, to what people can do or what they can't do, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and some of the seller financing is regulated at a very high level. And I know there's a whole seller finance reform that's going to D.C. oftentimes. And I support those guys because I think seller financing is a great option for, for affordable housing to solve some of that problem. But, you know, with seller financing, obviously you have a limited amount of deals that you can do per year before you're looked at as a lender. And I'm not sure the number, I think uh, it's, it's under 10, I believe is the number. That's right. That's correct. And so you've got, you know, you've got that ceiling on you. The other ceiling that's created is obviously going out and getting, you know, more than 10 conventional mortgages. You've got that ceiling on you. But then guys that are doing big development deals, they have to be aware that these small banks that they're typically getting money from today, a lot of the small banks, my family's in the small banking industry and loves real estate investment. And so they're partnering with all these real estate developers. Most of them have a cap based on, you know, they have a lending cap based on their deposits and a whole equation. And so once you get past in a small bank that's got less than maybe 50 million, you know, 100 million worth of holdings, you know, you are typically never going to get beyond a threshold of, you know, a million to a million and a half, two million dollars uh, with them in lending capability. And so if your deals are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you can't always rely on the small banks, the credit unions and these small sources because they're capped based on this. You're going to have to go out and find other creative means. That's where, you know, a lot of these big funds come into place and private, you know, private groups and reggae offerings and all that type of stuff. I mean, then you got to get creative and get a little bit broader when you're doing bigger deals. One of my mantras, Eddie, is it's very hard to own real estate on a large scale out here until you own the real estate in between your ears. And, you know, you're a very successful person. Um, you strike me as the type of person that whatever you put your mind to, you're going to figure out a way to do it if you want to do it bad enough. And so I'd like to dig into your mind and your heart for a moment before we wrap up the show. What would you say are some of your, you know, personal characteristics that have lended themselves to you getting to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish on the big picture over the years? Yeah. So, so to me, there's kind of three pillars of my life. The three things that I'm chasing. Number one, time. You know, time is so important. 
You know, it's the three pillars I built Think Realty for, time, wealth, and purpose. I believe that you know, wealth isn't just money. Wealth is the ability to do what I need to do today and still have enough sustenance tomorrow when you look at it on a global scale. And then ultimately purpose. I've got a large nonprofit, two of them actually. I have uh, radio and television stations outside of the U.S., uh, some feeding centers and some orphanages. And for me, if I tie my work to my purpose, then oftentimes the mechanism you know, to help me get to my purpose aligns itself. Real estate investing has just been the greatest you know, tool and vehicle to get to my purpose. And I've told you know, a lot of people around the country, if I could find a, a tool that was better than real estate or lending in real estate, I'd go do it. I just can't find one. It's not that I'm just a fanatic about real estate. It's that I'm a fanatic about the purpose that I want to accomplish in my life. And it's just the greatest tool that I've found. You know, and so for me, all of my accomplishments have been tied to a, a clear focus and vision on what my purpose is. And it is that purpose that, you know, yes, it's my family. Yes, it's providing. Yes, it's giving them a good life. But then it's doing something to impact this world for, for the greater good, you know. And so for me, uh, focusing on that helps me constantly align and, and change. The second thing is we talk a lot about money in this investment space. Money is the, the constant conversation between us all. The problem is, is that then we'll turn around and, and say something like this, you know, my time is far more valuable than the money, right? Well, to me, the one thing that I, I was blessed with was a great family growing up. And my father oftentimes would say things like this. He would say, Eddie, I would say, dad, I'm going to go buy a car, you know, 16, 17 years old. He's okay. Well, how much do you make per hour? Oh, I make, you know, back then $7 an hour. Okay. So in order to buy that $10,000 car, it's going to cost you how many years worth of work to own that car. And he constantly drove home in my mind that there is a value to my time. I do it with my kids. I, I do it, you know, with their chores and, you know, my son that's in college, I constantly driving home that time has value more than money has value. And so instead of me focusing on the money I have, I focus on the time that I have. And I spend each day constantly tweaking and changing the schedule that I keep in order to accomplish more. The money always follows. If time really is our most valuable asset, then we should spend more time managing our time than time managing our money. The money that I make is always a byproduct of me using my time wisely in the opportunities that I have each and every day. So those are the two things, you know, stay, staying focused on my purpose rather than each daily mechanism to get to that purpose, and then choosing to spend more time managing my time than managing my money. I also sense that there's a spiritual foundation to yourself and your background. Am I sensing that correctly? Absolutely. Yeah, my nonprofit is Christian Media International. Um, my own TV and radio stations, and it's those TV and radio stations that then support the feeding centers, the education centers, and the orphanages. Yes, sir. The, I was raised in a family of faith, and it is those faith-based principles that really underline my life. And you know, whether somebody is a person of faith or not, the principles are amazing. And it's those principles that I was given as a child that have really served me well in my later life. Well, there's another reason we connect so well, Eddie. I, um, I respect you for that. Eddie, I tell you what, you've been a fantastic guest and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with me today and for the audience. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for what you do. So with that, folks, you have been introduced to the man himself. 
Eddie Wilson. Wow. What a story you've got. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us. And just one more time, Eddie, for those that are listening and not able to look at the show notes, how about give out your websites just one more time? Sure. So it's Think Realty, thinkrealty.com. That's for the Think Realty brand. And AAPL online, AAPL online.com for the American Association of Private Lenders. That's perfect. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jay Connor, the Private Money Authority, wishing you all the best. And with this show and all the other shows, here's to taking your real estate investing business to the next level. Bye for now. We'll see you on the next show. Thank you.